Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. One of the key themes from our recent podcast with Jean Gomes is that there is simply no longer a roadmap to guide us in navigating life as there once was. The ambiguity and complexity of our lives today means our career futures are likely to be even more uncertain. A scary thought in light of one piece of research that predicts 800 million global workers may see their jobs replaced by AI in just the next seven years. So I'm particularly interested in how we can all successfully navigate these new and choppy, choppy waters and how to be brave in a very new world in which we now live. Many of you likely know that Martin Seligman is a University of Pennsylvania professor, the former president of the American Psychological Association, and the father of positive psychology. It was Seligman who first argued that psychological research would far better serve society if it focused more on discovering ways to enable human flourishing than it does on treating people who already have psychological illness. Recently, Seligman partnered with Dr. Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman in writing the new bestseller, Tomorrow Mind, Thriving at Work with Resilience, Creativity and Connection, Now and in an Uncertain Future. And Dr. Kellerman is our podcast guest. Trained in psychology herself and having earned a medical degree from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine and a bachelor's degree summa cum laude from Harvard University, she is the chief product and chief innovation officer at human transformation company BetterUp. And it's much of her work that has identified the five psychological powers she and Martin Seligman believe are most essential to your personal thriving in this future workplace. So I promise we're going to discuss these one at a time, but those five specific powers are resilience and cognitive ability, meaning and mattering, connection and rapid rapport building, prospection, which is the forward-looking ability to emotionally and logistically prepare for change before it arrives, and finally, creativity and innovation. We know that during and after COVID, relentless change has wrecked havoc on our psyches and has taken a great toll on our collective well-being. But as Dr. Kellerman asserts, we are not doomed, far from it. Even better, we might actually grow stronger in this new era. So understanding how that might happen, not to mention my desire to bolster your sense of optimism to handle whatever does come next, is the principal goal of this episode and why we've invited Dr. Kellerman to join us. With that as some foundation for our conversation, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gabriella Rosen Kellerman. Thanks so much. Really great to be here with you. Well, I'm very much looking forward to this. Your book, just to get right into it, underscores the fact that the future is uncertain. And as examples, you reference rapid technological change, overnight disruption of entire industries, the rise of volatility in every global market. And I think we're all familiar with those, but you mentioned one trend that just stunned me and that I think our listeners might find disconcerting, even though they heard it in the introduction. According to one estimate that you cite, 800 million global workers will see their jobs replaced by AI in the next seven years, and 80% of us will see our income reduced. Honestly, I'd never seen a prediction like this that stark. So let's start off with telling us where the research comes from, what jobs are likely to be impacted, and how we might be able to prepare for that. 
Yeah, so this is from a McKinsey Global Institute report from a few years ago. You know, what they do is they look at trends in skills and how skills are turning over. They look at the rise of automation. They they take these massive global trends and then they try to put it together to help us understand what it's going to mean for our work and our future and careers. 800 million is the high end of the estimate. I think the low end was 300 million or 400 million. And then the income reduction, that's actually just one of the ways that it could manifest for each of us. So it's not that in every case, the income reduction is going to be a factor, but they're trying to help us really understand and wrap our heads around the, the massive nature of the shift that's in the future for all of us in some way, shape or form. And from a psychological perspective, what we're trying to do with the book is help us internalize the fact that change is going to keep coming for us over the course of our career, that even so we don't have to be victim to it, we can develop skills in order to be armed to thrive nonetheless. I think there's got to be at least one person listening to this thinking, there's nothing I can do to prepare if 800 million people are going to lose their jobs. What kinds of jobs are going to be replaced? Are they strictly administrative? 800 million has to occupy a lot of different, you know, jobs and positions. So drill down on that if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So the best way to think about it is what are the kinds of functions that AI is increasingly able to take over? And many of them have been already taken over from us in the last 10 to 20 years. And a lot of it we're quite happy about, you know, some of the really rote tasks, fine-grained detail review on code or documents. It's not necessarily something we really want to be doing. Now, we want to hold on to our jobs, but a lot of what's happening is that there's a, a slow evolution of pieces of the puzzle start to be replaced, and eventually the job is not the same job anymore. And part of what's happening in that 800 million figure, it's not just that we're losing our jobs, but we're shifting into new jobs as well. And that is the agility we want to have so that as more of the functions that can now be done by machines are taken over, we're leaning into our more deeply human capabilities. We're leaning into the things that technology cannot yet today and may not ever be able to take over from us, hopefully enjoying that work more, by the way, but looking to develop more of these skills that are less rote, more creative, more inherently homo sapiens versus bits and bytes. That's insightful. I guess I want to pin down that what I intuited in listening to you is that you're actually very hopeful. So when I read 800 million global workers will see their jobs replaced, I have this image of the tsunami and carnage and people's lives destroyed. But you're much more hopeful. Much more hopeful. You know, I think these new technologies open up capabilities for us. Just think about this podcast that we're able to do as two people in disparate geographies. We're relying on a lot of technology to do things that wasn't possible a long time ago, or maybe you would have needed a large team and there would be less likelihood of the content being available. And you and I would then not get to have this fun, interesting conversation that hopefully will benefit others. So I think that there's a really hopeful side of it. It's not meant to be starry-eyed. It's very challenging to have career job change. That part does not come naturally to us, but we're a very adaptive species and we have a deep understanding of behavioral science that can help us overcome those psychological challenges. Well, 
hope is a great place to start. So thank you for positioning it that way. I read a quote in your book, and it's from a futurist and former chief scientist at Xerox. His name is John Steely Brown. I know you're familiar with this, but I have a question at the end. Let me read the quote from my audience. He says, for my parents, the typical career trajectory was like a steamship. Fire up the engines and full steam ahead. And for my generation, the course was more like sailboats. Through skillful tacking, we got pretty close to where we thought we would. But today's graduates need to be more like whitewater kayakers, quickly analyzing and responding to every flow, knowing and trusting themselves so they won't panic. So this is three generations, and we're really talking about the newest generation. What advice do you have for anyone who still has many years left in their career? How do we navigate all of this whitewater? That's really the question of the book and what we try to give a a lengthy answer to. It really has to do with developing these skills that allow us to thrive in constant and uncertain change around us and to convert those into opportunities. And I love the white water metaphor for so many reasons, including that there are people who freaking love the whitewater. They freaking love whitewater rafting. They have the time of their lives doing it. And then there are those of us who are terrified by it. And thankfully, we don't literally have to go wrapped in the whitewater, but we do literally have to reinvent ourselves in our career probably several times over, especially those of us with many years still left in the career. And the more we can develop these skills that let us enjoy that, enjoy the opportunity, enjoy the improvisational quality of what it is to be a modern professional, the better able will be to succeed. I really like the metaphor as well. And it your answer just helped me transition to where I really want to go. But let me first introduce my audience to your co-author. Martin Seligman is one of the true stars of the positive psychology movement who brilliantly suggested that psychology research should place greater focus on identifying the conditions under which human beings thrive, use his word flourish, as opposed to finding more ways of treating psychological illness. And speaking of human well-being, your own work has identified five psychological powers that are most essential to thriving in the workplace. And I introduced all five during your introduction, so my audience is already familiar with them, but Can you take them one by one and explain, I guess, how did you identify them? How do we cultivate them? And how do we teach them to the people that we lead and manage? Absolutely. So the five are summarized by the acronym PRISM, P-R-I-S-M. P is for prospection, R, resilience, I, innovation, S, social connection, and M, mattering. I'll go through each of them. The research comes from BetterUp Labs, which is an organization that the CEO of BetterUp, Alexi Robichaud, had me start in 2017 in order to study exactly this question. What are the skills that we need to thrive in this very unusual modern world of work? How can we develop them? What science do we have versus what's missing and how can we accelerate that? And as a company at BetterUp, we're helping hundreds of thousands of global professionals at a time work on their own development in order to succeed personally and professionally in this environment. We have a tremendous amount of data to draw from to look at what are the skills that result in better personal and professional outcomes when you build them, as you develop them, how does that change things? And so we've been able to distill it to five The first is P, prospection, which is foresight. It's our ability to 
see ahead of change in kind of a probabilistic way to say, okay, this uncertainty can mean lots of things. What are some of the least likely but still potentially catastrophic or extremely positive outliers that I want to keep in mind and prepare for? Developing that skill positions us in a more empowered place in the whitewater. The R is for resilience, which is at its baseline, just a skill that lets us bounce back from challenge without harm, but at its most extreme is about how do we grow stronger through challenge? How can each challenge help us develop skills similar to our immune system and biology getting stronger with each virus we see? I is innovation and creativity. We touched on that a little bit. As more and more of the rote tasks get automated, what's left for us all to do is to be creative. So how do we develop that as leaders and in our teams? S is social connection. So much of what we do today, our outputs are collaborative. We're also very focused on customer service as an arena for value creation. How do we do that in an environment that's so fast paced where we're working and serving people who are very different? And we open up this idea of rapid rapport, which is the ability to quickly build trust across difference. And the last is mattering, which is our sense that what we're doing at work every day has some purpose that there's a, a reason to get up in the morning and engage in that labor that helps fuel us to do this work of getting through change. So let's take them one at a time. And you took them in the order of prism. So let's start with prospection. This is really developing the ability to read signals, read signs, understand what's happening in the world, and make some reasonably effective predictions on what could happen. Is that a good summary? Start there. It is. And I think, again, the goal is not that we want to always be able to predict exactly what's about to happen, but to be positioned in an agile way around lots of possibilities so that we are not as far behind the eight ball and responding to the next thing that's coming our way. So two things. One is, how do I develop this? What are the resources you encourage people to tap into how does someone come to trust and believe in what they're seeing and their ability to predict these options? So they're not saying, I know what the future is. They're saying, these are the possibilities that I should be considering given what I see. Yeah, so our book goes through a lot of the science we've developed on this. It is a younger science, but we're proud to have contributed a lot in terms of the theory and the interventions. One of the first and most foundational pieces is understanding that prospection happens in two phases. The first phase is very optimistic. It's fast. It's divergent. We think about lots of possibilities quickly and, and we feel often hopeful and excited. And then the second comes after the order of just seconds or minutes of that first phase. And it sets in and it's more deliberative. It's more evaluative. It can tend to be more pessimistic. And that's where we're now narrowing down from all of these divergent possibilities, which are we going to take seriously and pursue. So getting better at prospection, at what we call pragmatic prospection, which is highly effective prospection, and it's what we're after in this environment, is about fine-tuning both of those phases. And we have individually and across the species different biases that work against us in doing that well. So for example, 
one of the mental acts and tendencies that's quite bad for not just perspection, but resilience is catastrophization, where we are in an environment of uncertainty and we immediately think about the, what's the worst case scenario of what this means and what it means for me. And that could be something like, I'm going to lose my job. And we get stuck and frozen because of this highly pessimistic, catastrophic outcome that we're predicting and it starts to feel like truth, even though it's just one of many, many possibilities. So how do we get ourselves out of those mental traps so that we have a full, fair phase one with a full divergent set of possibilities. And then in phase two, we're evaluating realistically what's the probability of those different possibilities and how am I now going to allocate my own resources, my time, my attention, if I'm a leader, my team's resources, my team's attention against a more realistic, balanced perspective of those probabilities. What are ways that you teach people to get out of what you call mental traps? You know, they start to see signs that things are going south and it's immediately mayday, mayday, you know, chicken little, the world's coming to an end. How do you teach people to not go there? Yeah, so the specific trap of catastrophization, the exercise we teach is called putting it in perspective. You can do it on your own. You can do it with a coach. You can also help your team member do it. And what you want to do is actually create a visual x-axis of possibilities in an environment of uncertainty. So let's imagine that it's midday on a Friday. You're kind of wrapping up for the week and you get a ping from your boss's assistant. It says, boss needs to meet you 4 p.m. today, gives you a Zoom link or tells you where to go in person no further information is provided. Now, this is a scenario where many of us have a specific catastrophic thought. Can you guess what that catastrophic <laughs> thought might be? Especially right now, since thousands and thousands of people are getting that email. Yes, I know what the answer is, sadly. Okay, so many of us will have the thought, I am being laid off, I'm about to be fired. And in the hours between, let's say, 12 p.m. when you get the ping and 4 p.m. when you have the meeting, people may not actually start acting like they have been fired. They might feel it physically in their body, the stress of it. They may call a loved one for comfort. They might freshen up their resume or start thinking about who they are. You have to start networking with. Now, granted, we're in an environment right now of a lot of layoffs. Even so, if you think about your boss and try to call to mind a specific person, either your current boss or a past boss who's more relevant for the example, they have maybe eight meetings on a Friday afternoon if they're a busy person and 50 Fridays per year. So we're talking about hundreds of Friday afternoon meetings. How many of them are actually about firing someone, you know, outside of an environment of immediate and acute layoffs? It's very, very few of those. And so on your x-axis, what you want to do is chart Worst case scenario on the far left, put a point there at the end of the line and you can write above the line the worst case scenario you already thought of, which is I'm being laid off or maybe, you know, the company's going under these really, really catastrophic outcomes. They're not impossible, but they are unlikely in the grand scheme of things. And then over on the right hand side, put a dot and put under that far right hand dot best case scenario. So what is the best case scenario, even in this climate, that you could get that message from your boss? Can you think of any? 
you're getting a promotion, you're getting a raise, you're getting an exciting project, you're getting training. There's all sorts of wonderful things that can come from that. All sorts of things, right? And it could happen just that way. Let's mm-hmm. think about um, a bonus. Bonuses can happen out of the blue. They can happen because there's a budget windfall for your specific part of the organization. And boss is like, this is where it's going. Mark's getting a bonus, you know, let's send him off for a great weekend. I'll let him know. So first you flexed that muscle and got into the catastrophic position. Now you're extending the muscle and kind of overcompensating in the other direction of the most positive possible scenario. So you're starting to open up some space psychologically to embrace different possibilities. And then you want to go to the middle of that line. And in the middle is what we would call the most likely scenarios. And so it's probably 12 or 15 you could come up with. There's a new hire coming in on Monday and the boss needs me to onboard them. There's a new project that has to be fast-tracked. Boss needs my help with it. All kinds of reasons you could be called in without context for a last-minute meeting with your boss that actually have nothing to do with you at all or your performance at all. It's about the business. It's general operational needs. That's what most of your boss's Friday afternoon meetings are about. And you want to populate that part of the spectrum with as many possibilities as possible because, again, you're retraining your brain to see almost this bell curve of probability around what could be happening here. There's very unlikely bad things. There's very unlikely good things. We don't need to ignore those. But we want to center ourselves and operate around that middle of the spectrum, which is the most likely while keeping those unlikely scenarios kind of in the periphery of our vision. It's really helpful because it may not be a four o'clock Friday call that we're fearful of. It could be anything a boss tells us, well, we got to get together and talk about something and I'll tell you what that's going to be later. And people then get into fantasy land and they start to assume they're the worst. And then they go into a meeting and they bring some degree of tension or anger or frustration. And the person that's in the meeting's like, why are you behaving like this? Like, there's nothing to do with what we're talking about. So I like the centering, managing your state orientation that you just described. And that leads us into resilience. And as I thought about resilience when I was reading your book, I was thinking about the Gallup Global Survey, which showed that, you know, right now we're living through a period where negative emotions are at all time high, and particularly anxiety, stress, anger, and then mental health and well-being is also on the decline. So now post-COVID, people are already kind of on the ropes and we're going to be introducing all kinds of change. The world is, the universe is. How do you teach people to be resilient in this kind of a climate? Yeah, so I think we need to be clear-eyed about the fact that there are these challenges around us. And we can also be hopeful that we as a species have overcome tremendously challenging environments and The same hundred people can go through the same experience and some will really be debilitated by that and some will grow much stronger because of it. And then in the middle, most people come out just fine. And so the goal is how do we create the skills that allow people to do best, at least to bounce back without harm? or potentially even to grow stronger. And again, one of our unique historic advantages today of working to adapt to a new world of work in 2023 is we have a fairly mature behavioral science literature and an evidence base to draw from. We're contributing with this book around resilience 
an analysis that shows what the five key drivers of resilience are based on looking again at hundreds of thousands of workers at the individual team and organizational level. We've identified five skills that if you can develop those skills, those are going to result in resilient outcomes. And what's nice about breaking it down into five is that all of us will already have skills in some of these areas and then other areas where we really need to work on the skills. It can give us clarity about what skills to lean into because we know they're already strong when we're in tough times. And then also what are the areas to invest in developing because those are areas where we have more room for growth. It happens to be that I think the first two in your prism are the ones that really need to be cultivated. Not to say that the others aren't important. They most certainly are. But I'd be willing to ask if you could give us a quick summary of what those five are, if you think you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two different fives in the mix in our conversation at this point. There's the five skills overall that drive thriving at work, and that's summarized by the acronym PRISM. And then within the R of PRISM, which is resilience, if you double click on that R, there's five skills that lead to a resilient outcome. And those are emotional regulation. So our ability to not be overwhelmed by our emotions, to recognize them, but then reappraise and respond to environments from a more centered place. What The exercise we just did around catastrophization is a great example mm-hmm. of how you could react emotionally, but we're going to pull back. We're going to retrain ourselves to respond in a more centered way. The second is cognitive agility, which is this ability to go back and forth between the forest view and the trees view. We need the forest view to understand what are the pieces of influence the winds of change that could result in something new happening and being attuned to those. And then the tree view is we need to be able to focus, to choose a place to focus our energies and really dig in there. Being able to go back and forth between those two is a huge part of being successful in the whitewater. The third is optimism. (laughs) I think that there's been a lot of controversy around optimism in the last 10, 20 years, because there's a version of it that's almost toxic positivity. It's Mm. like pretending everything is fine. And that's never been what Marty or any of the other major optimism researchers have been advocating for. It's much more about a realistic way of saying, yes, all of this is true and I can find a path forward. And the function of optimism, the reason it's so important is it keeps us motivated If we are pessimistic, we stop working toward a better outcome. And ultimately, we can't get through the whitewater without a lot of motivation. So optimism is a big part of why we keep fighting in a tough moment to get to something better because we believe it's possible. So that's three. The fourth is self-efficacy, which is our self-confidence that we can accomplish our goals, that we can accomplish what we set our mind to. And that can be built in all kinds of arenas. It's actually a great thing for managers to help their reports build by appropriately giving them tasks that match their skill level and then helping them recognize when they have accomplished those and done so while we build up that confidence. And the final one is self-compassion. That's our ability to extend to ourselves the playbook of caring and compassion that we are very naturally able to extend to others in moments of difficulty. Think about how different it feels to hear about a friend getting laid off than to experience that ourselves. When we hear about a friend, we immediately go to, you know, the the feelings of care, the feelings of this is a tough environment and they're going to have to figure out how to get through it, but it's much less personal. 
versus how hard we can be on ourselves immediately in those moments. And so we want to almost externalize the experience and treat ourselves as if we are our own best friend or our own sibling that we're showing up for to take care of them in a moment of challenge. As I listen to the five that you just listed, and the last one, of course, is I've read Kristen Neff's work on this. And this happens to be like my weakest or historically has been my weakest self-compassion. Like, what's that? You know, if I'm not hard on myself, who's going to be is kind of my ridiculous mantra. So of the five, which one do you think people struggle with most? It's a great question. There are definitely people who struggle with self-compassion. I would say emotional regulation is something universally that we're all working on and we can all grow in. And there's really no no one who's a such a master of it that they don't need to keep working on it. There's more and more advanced ways of working on it once you get to that level. But a huge part of just adult development is learning more and more profound emotional regulation so that we can yield the wisdom of our emotions without being overwhelmed by them. This is out of context, but I just recently read Sam Harris's book, Waking Up, and just popped into my mind to ask you, is meditation foundational in your coaching? Are you encouraging and even insisting that the hundreds of thousands of people that you're developing, is that part of the curriculum or part of what you're encouraging people to take on? So meditation is a a wonderful tool in developing emotional regulation. It's a wonderful tool for people who tend toward the anxious to keep them present-minded and Mm -hmm. grounded in the present. The shadow side of prospection is actually worry to be too future-minded. That's another way where we can go wrong with prospection and, and meditation can be extremely, extremely powerful. We also teach our coaches about areas where meditation is going to be less helpful. There are different cognitive functions where this very, very focused effort to stay in the moment and present is going to interfere with a different type of intensive cognitive activity. And so understanding kind of when to use the tool, how to use the tool, what are the outcomes you're looking for with meditation is a big part of making sure that it's working toward our aims and toward our goals. Wonderful. Let's get to the next one, innovation and creativity. Yeah, so this is the ability to use this beautifully native capability we all have to be creative, to come up with novel solutions to novel problems. We are looking to bring a toolkit to individuals and teams around how to do that. And part of that is just simply helping people understand their own creative strengths. There's still a lot of people. And I would say every time I talk about creativity, there's at least one person who raises their hands and says, but I'm not creative. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's mainly a product of, you know, the last 100, 200, 300 years of culture where we developed ideas about artists are creative, everyone else is not, or inventors are creative, everyone else just operates the machines. And it kind of made sense in an industrial world of work where there wasn't that much that's creative for us to do. But it was never true that people were not universally creative. You know, our creativity is why as a species, we are the most dominant in the planet. It's why Homo sapiens 
was dominant over less creative hominid species. So we all have that hardwired, but there is a need to return to that sense of identity and that understanding of what creativity is, because actually our self-belief in our own creativity is one of the biggest predictors of the quality of our creative output. So you just talked about self-belief and in your book, you actually assert that everyone is creative and we should be expecting everyone to be creative. So if I'm managing someone, that one person you just described, you said, well, yeah, I'm not creative. Please don't ask me to be creative. What are ways managers and leaders can help people put a fire hose to the idea that they're not creative? Yeah, so that is an amazing opportunity for a manager to really change someone's life. So two pieces to what I would say here. The first is this idea of our creative self-belief. There's a technical term for it, which is creative self-efficacy. And we build that up in large part by other people actually helping us understand that they see us as creative, that things we're doing are creative. Managers, teachers, parents are in a unique position of tremendous influence because of that power distance to help build up creative self-efficacy. And so for that individual, one of the first things you can do is point out to them what are the creative things that you've seen them do in their job. It can be really small things count too, like coming up with a new way of signing off on a customer call that has just the right energy. That's a creative act to point it out to recognize it, to name it as creative, that's going to go a long way toward helping that person start to believe in themselves. And in the moment answering that question in talks, that's something I try to do is just by the way someone asks the question or by the way they describe their profession, help them see how much of what they're doing is already inherently creative. And it's just a different idea they have of what it means. The other thing that is really helpful in awakening a creative identity is to go through this typology that we offer four types of divergent thinking. When we say go work on this creatively, often what we mean is go do something divergent and creative thought is often described as divergent, but telling someone to go be divergent is not very instructive. And so what we've done is broken down divergence into four types, four directions, four flavors of divergent thinking. We go through them in detail in the book. There's integration, splitting, distal, figure ground reversal, very different ways of thinking creatively. But as you understand each of them, it's natural that we start to identify with one or the other more as that comes more naturally to me. And the second we say, oh, I'm naturally more of an integrator. I'm someone who likes to find patterns and bring two things together that seem to be very different. We are actually now assuming a creative identity as an integrative type. And so as you work with your teams, you can have them go through that exercise ask them which they identify with, and then they actually self-identified as creative in the process of going through that. I love the idea of leaders helping someone change their life by doing this. And I don't remember ever managing anyone in my career who didn't demonstrate some form of creativity. And in your book, you do, you line up different ways that people can be creative. But it was always a grand assumption for me that all people are creative. And I think if you just start off with that premise, you're going to encourage people to actually behave that way. So thank you. The next one is one I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on, which is social connection, particularly in the environment that we're in where people are working remotely, 
you know, at least a couple, three days a week. How does that affect social connection? Yeah, so we talk in the book about the fact that social connection is more important than ever to the outputs of our work. It's as important as ever to our well-being. So relationships are a pillar of every model of well-being that we have. And yet the nature of our work makes it harder than ever to connect for three reasons. The first is time. We have the sense of not having enough time. We feel busy. We're working extremely long hours. And when we feel the sense of what's called time famine, we're less likely to reach out to one another and connect. The second is space. So more and more of us are working either remote or hybrid. We're geographically distanced from the people that we are collaborating with. And then the last one is what neuroendocrinologist Robert Sapolsky calls us them. It's the fact that we automatically process people as either an us or a them. And Mm -hmm. historically as hunter-gatherers, us really meant like our family, the 50 or 100 people in our tribe that we knew from the time we were born and everyone else was a them. And if you think about it that way, really everyone we work with is a them today. Everyone we work with is a stranger in the way our brain's going to process them. And we need to figure out how to shift from a them to an us so that we can get to that rich sense of trust, that rapport that brings us together, yields empathy for our customers and our colleagues, gets us to the richer creative outputs that we're after. This is a very big challenge now, particularly when you've got media that almost seems to be motivated to divide people, to make more of a us versus them kind of a wedge. And so I think what's happening is that we're bringing that politics, you know, you you can't have it affect you personally and not have it influence who you are at work. So people are coming in with this us versus them mentality from a political nature, and that influences them to be less stressful. So coupled with the environment that we're in right now, which is remote working, what's advice that you have for managers to really, really elevate social connection, not only just from a human thriving standpoint, but from an operational organizational thriving aspect. Yeah, so each of those barriers has different solutions for it, and we go through that in the book. I think that this point we're talking about in terms of the division and all of these forces that are pulling us further apart versus bringing together, I'll offer a perspective on the us-them piece, which is one of the tools that we provide in the book. When we are categorizing someone as a them, whether because of race or gender, ethnicity or function, there's a lot that happens in the workplace around, you know, let's say sales versus marketing. Yeah, you just took the words out of my mouth. Exactly. (laughs) Those divisions are really strong along a lot of different fault lines. We have to understand that our brain in categorizing someone as them has figured out a category we're going to put someone in that's different from the category we're in. And we need to find a category that we both fit in that feels deeper and more meaningful than those other categories. So that becomes the primary way we register them and and we are united as an us. It takes a little bit of time to get to know someone at that level, but keeping in mind in your interactions that you're trying to get to know the real authentic Gabriella, the real authentic Mark, deep things about you that we share, that we know 
bring us together in a pretty deep fundamental way where if there is some bigger war to be fought, we're going to be on the same team because we share that thing. That's where you get to this deeper level of bonding. Some of what's required to get there is really deep listening. We need to be able to share vulnerably with one another to get to that point. So if you've heard about these tools around listening and opening up and being vulnerable, it's creating a surface for bonding, for that kind of bonding. But What's happening is we're recategorizing fundamentally from them to an us, but also trying to find this new identity. Maybe we're both struggling single moms of young kids. Maybe we're both natives of one part of the world transplanted to another and feeling alienated. What is that calling? What is that thing we're both working on, maybe even struggling with that we can support each other in and find that bond of an us? Do we have to work on ourselves to get there? So when we think about psychological safety and we think about tolerance for other people, you listed it out in terms of race and sexual orientation. When you're coaching people, are you working with them to evaluate their values and to dig into perhaps a lack of tolerance for people that are different than them? Yeah, 100%. The work of social connection that we just talked about, it can only be done by people with a high degree of self-awareness and a high degree of compassion. So that's actually why in the book, social connection comes after the resilience chapter and the mattering chapter. The book's not ordered in the order it is a prism. Um, because these skills build on each other over time. And even something like emotional regulation, which we talked about, these are just the very beginnings of the deep internal work that this is all calling for. Self-awareness is a huge part of coaching, and it's part of why we do assessments for everyone we work with. The very first thing is a self-assessment. We're asking you questions about yourself in areas that you may never have thought of before as far as your own capacities and skills and awakening this idea that we're at different skill levels. There is a wide range of competencies that we may not even be aware of. Let's start by asking those questions. And it's amazing how strong an intervention just an assessment is, let alone the conversation that happens with the coach around the results to look at it and digest it. Because many of these questions we've never been asked before, including ones about how well we're able to include others, how well we're able to show up authentically around people who are different from us, how well we're able to sense and be empathetic toward others. Those are the sorts of questions that really get us thinking about the work we need to do in order to create space for that bonding. That's wonderful. One of our big themes here is know thyself. And those questions are very unique, but they really get to what I was just wondering about, which is, are you challenging people? Because I think sometimes the we, they that you've been describing, a lot of times we think it's the they that need to do the work here. I'm pretty cool. You know, I got my act together, but it's them that needs to work. And so you're not letting people off the hook with your coaching, which I think is great. Not at all. And and this idea of us, them, it, it's happening in our brain. It's happening in my brain. I'm processing someone as a them versus an us. I need to know that that's happening automatically. If I want to change that, I need to rewire my own brain to change that. And it takes effort and awareness. You know, there's a lot of distrust in workplaces today. And obviously, when you see what's happening with layoffs and 
stack rankings and things that are sort of re-emerging here that we thought we might not see for a while, it's causing people to look at even their own bosses with a degree of askance, if you will. So if I'm a manager and I'm trying to get people to feel more us versus them, to be more tolerant of other people, to be more accepting, to be more willing to be vulnerable. How do you do that? What are you teaching managers to do? So one of the big shifts in terms of what it means to be a manager today that we're advocating for and most of our customers up are very bought into is this idea that management today is largely about coaching because Mm -hmm. we want people to get to these deeply human meta skills. It requires deep internal change, what we call inner work. And you can't get there without intrinsic motivation. And so you've got to figure out as a manager, part of what you're trying to do is what's motivating each person for this change. And for a given person who has a lot of low self-awareness around it, doesn't seem to be on a journey around these connection skills. What would it take to motivate that person? What do they care most about? Social connection is so in the fabric of everything personal, everything professional. So there's almost always a way into it through what that person organically cares about and is working on, whether it's the fact that they're really struggling with a lot of conflict at work. Well, that's not disconnected from this need to work on this area or struggling to build relationships. You know, these are things that are so fundamental to our entire lives. And it's about finding What is that channel for motivation? And that can be difficult. And to the extent that that's deeper work than that person can do, it may not be a good fit to have them in in a role where these deeply trusting relationships are really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All jobs are different, obviously, and different organizations have different cultures and so forth. But do you have, I hate to ask questions like this because you're so precise, but do you have any standard, generic, general recommendation on what the balance of in-office versus remote working on a five-day-per-week basis looks like? I'm really specifically thinking about social connection. Yeah. So I will say I think that the scientific jury is out on this. There's a lot of experimentation happening. I think it's great to see large corporations measuring things around productivity connection, not taking for granted that in-person versus at home is a way to go and trying different things. I think we'll know the answer within the next couple of years based on studies. In the meantime, Companies are doing their best. They're saying what's important for our, what we think yields the best outcomes for our culture and, and our research and our innovation. Employees have some ability to kind of self-select around that. I think that we have to be wide-eyed about the fact that there's lots of employers who are very happy for people to work remote or work hybrid. And so there's a competitive pressure to give people choice here. Two other things I'll mention on this. Mm. One thing in our book is we do have research on to the extent that you're working remote, how do you build connection anyway? And one of the keys is about shared time, making time to share experiences together, not just meetings, but more meaningful bonding experiences. It's much more impactful than asynchronous emails or messages in terms of building connection. The second thing is that I do think, and there's there's already some data, I think we'll see even more, this question of remote versus in-person it hits differently for different groups. It hits differently for working parents. It hits differently for people of different 
socioeconomic status, who live in areas with more or less geographic opportunity available, that's something that's going to affect equity ultimately, and, and we have to take that into consideration. Let's get to meaning and mattering, the last of the five. Great. So we talked about the fact that this is the fuel for this work. All the stuff we're talking about, it's deep. And what drives us to keep working on it? What drives us to stick with our company through first the merger, then the the organizational restructuring, then the pivot in our product line, change after change after change, what keeps us committed? And we have to believe fundamentally that our work matters Ideally, we also feel a deep sense of meaning and purpose in that work. And we've done a lot of research on meaning and purpose to define what are the core sources of meaning for people, what are the most likely ways to get people engaged around meaning and purpose at work. But there's something even more primal about all of this, which was an idea that the philosopher and MacArthur genius Rebecca Goldstein has really popularized and comes from the ancient Greeks, this need to matter, to wake up every day and believe that the work I'm going to do in my job, it matters somehow. It's contributing something to the universe in a way that wouldn't happen if I wasn't here. And that in and of itself is like a very basic level of motivation that we all need to have. And it's on our organizations and particularly our direct managers to provide for us clarity why the work matters, and why we should keep doing it. You know, one of the things that people have told me, which I don't believe, which I shouldn't tell you in advance of asking what you think, they're saying that work has just become so transactional that there is no way of finding meaning and significance and mattering at work so much as there is independent of their jobs. So with respect to the 100,000 people that you're working with or have worked with, is there any truth in that? Are people feeling that? And I guess the other counter side of this is to say, even if work has become more transactional, there's no guarantee on how long it will last or whether you'll stay in that position, whether you'll still have the same boss, all those kinds of things. Yeah. So first, I'll share the perspective of those who would say that that is not true, that there's always a way to find meaning and purpose. And then I'll take that position that you just assumed and talk about why mattering is really important in that context. So if you look at what it means to find meaning and purpose at work, there are schools of thought that would say, We can study the whole population. We can look at what are the main drivers of meaning and work for everyone and break them down into there's seven categories that one particular team has come up with. And the number one category is a sense of personal growth. And after that is a sense of professional growth. And then somewhere down the list is the sense of service to others. Work can be completely transactional in the sense that I may not be super bought into the mission of this SaaS platform that makes financial transactions easier between large companies, just rattling off a random example of something that may be hard to find a deep, meaningful connection to the purpose of the work itself. But I can find tremendous meaning in the fact that I'm making my colleagues' life easier by developing this software that means that they don't have to spend hours banging their head against the wall or I know that I'm making my customer's life a lot easier, giving them now more time that they can spend on more meaningful activities. So there's ways of getting at that. And there are exercises and trainings you can do for managers to help people connect to that. 
there's a lot of work we do with the people we coach to gain clarity on what are those sources of meaning and purpose. So I do think that there is a way to help people find that sense of purpose in their work. On the other hand, for people who are really disconnected, really not bought into their workplace and really are committed to a sense of meaning and purpose outside of work. And there are people who really have a strong belief about this, that my meaning is coming from my spiritual community. My meaning is coming from my parenting and and I'm at work just to earn the money to take care of my kids. It's important to know that there's a level of commitment we can get to that's deeper, that when we show up, and Amy Rusnewski has done a great job of this, along with Barry Schwartz and others, of showing that when we look at our profession as a job versus a career versus a calling, we get different levels of satisfaction out of it. We give of ourselves, of deeper parts of ourselves when it's a career and a calling. And so there's something to be said for trying to find that sense of connection. And this bottom line we're trying to draw, like a bright yellow line around is is mattering. That At the end of the day, even if you see your job as transactional, you need to know why your labors matter. There's a great example from this book by Studs Terkel from the 70s mm-hmm. who wrote Working and it's beautiful ethnographic research of people in different professions, just interviewing them about what it's like to do their job all day. And think about a grave digger with this man he interviews and he talks about how you could dig a hole for any number of reasons. You could dig a hole to build a sewer. You could dig a hole to just kill time and build your muscles. You could dig a hole for no reason at all. And his job is he's digging a hole because it's the final resting place for a human being. And he wants that hole to be perfect, to have sharp corners. He wants it to be just the right depth and even at the bottom. And that explanation of what is the point of this labor of digging a hole is so important. And we are all should have that sense of why it matters. We should have clarity on that. If we don't, we're just not going to dig the hole. Like we're just not going to do it. Who wants to just dig a hole for no reason? And increasingly today, the work of a manager is not just to tell us why we're digging the hole on a Monday, but on a Friday to tell us, okay, I need you to stop digging that hole, which originally was for a sewer. And, you know, and now we're going to go build a shed because that's actually the more important thing to do. And even though the hole is not done, I need you to go work on this other thing. So help me understand why did it still matter that I started digging that hole for the sewer and now we're stopping and going to do this totally other thing because the macro environment's changed and our company is pivoting. Help me stay connected to the reasons I'm doing this work, even though the focus and the activity and the goals are changing so quickly all the time. Everyone, we'll be right back with more of my conversation with Gabriella. I just have a quick and exciting announcement to make. Whenever I speak at companies, I'm frequently asked if I had ever considered creating a lead from the heart training program, an online learning curriculum that managers could take independently to reinforce all that they learned from hearing my presentation and or reading my book. And for years, I've always had to say no, but I long ago committed to creating a program like this as soon as I published my second edition. So today, I'm thrilled to say that the work is done. Over the past several months, I partnered with Jason Evanish and Lighthouse Lessons in creating a super actionable 12-lesson course that will help managers practice leading from the heart every day with their team. 
The material is presented in bite-sized lessons managers can easily incorporate into their work weeks. And the program not only explains the scientific reasons why leading from the heart is so highly effective, it also beautifully teaches all of the practices they need to master in order to excel as a leader today. So we'd be happy to send you more details on the new training, and it's incredibly affordable. So please reach out to me directly at mark at markccrowley.com. Don't forget the middle C, and we'll get you all of the info you need. I'm very proud about the training we've created and hope you'll consider enrolling yourself and your team of leaders. Thank you. Gabriella, we're going to stop here for a moment and move into what we call the heartbeat round to help us learn about you more personally, I'm gonna ask you several questions that we want you to answer instinctively and quickly, in other words, cleverly in a heartbeat. Are you willing to give it a go? Of course. All right, great. Something important and new you specifically learned in the process of writing your book. I learned a lot about the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, and to me, that that's the world we evolved in. So we just learn so much about ourselves, and we can learn about the environment that our brains in particular were most natural and comfortable in. Picking berries. A book of any genre you wish everyone in the world, or at least all of us, would read. I would say I and Thou by Martin Buber, really instinctual philosophy about the ways that we can relate to each other very deeply as humans, or we can treat each other transactionally. He intuited a lot of modern social psychology. If you had a theme song, what would it be? So my husband actually wrote a theme song for me um, back in the early days of our marriage in (laughs) in long New York winters where there wasn't much else to do. And it was kind of funky and jazzy and didn't say much except these like funky notes and sort of sounded like a band improvising, which I like the idea of. Is he a musician? He does music in his spare time, not professionally. Good for him. Good for you. Something you hope to see change in the world. I would love to see us invest more in the science of well-being for our children, continuing to bring more and more of the cutting-edge science into schools, into parent education, into the pediatrician's office, so that our kids are showing up in this topsy-turvy world of work with a full tank of resilience ready to go. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. It's egotism. I think it's getting in our own way because we're too caught up in in ourselves and not attuned enough to the collective. Trait you admire most in other people? Generosity and patience. I think they go together. Just willingness to give of yourself, particularly to others, without an overlaying concern about what you're giving up for yourself. Not that anyone's asking, but generosity is number one on my list, too. I love generous people. A cultural value every organization should have. I think inclusion is so important. It's so important for organizational outcomes, for retention, for, and ultimately for the full expression of the humanity of each worker. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Okay, I think everyone should at least once in their life have time, extended time, like a full day, a night, taking care of a baby, taking care of a really young baby. So if you're not a parent, can borrow a baby from a friend, they will be glad to have your help. And it's just a very unique experience that I think connects us to parts of our brain that we don't get access to without that experience. Lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. The perfect is the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. Proudest accomplishment of your life so far? My five children. Wow. 
Congratulations. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. More AI. Mm -hmm. One thing people would be surprised to learn about you. I follow pop culture pretty closely. Oh, really? Go on. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, just continue to try to keep up with what the kids are doing and talking about and, you know, what's on the radio. And maybe it's because I'm really psychologically a (laughs) 16-year-old. Maybe it's because I just like to know what's new and, and stay on top of new trends. Maybe something in between. And finally, your synonym for the word heart. So I really like the French word cœur, which is mm-hmm. C-O-E-U-R, and it's the origin of the word courage. And that connection between the heart and courage to me really speaks to what I think of about heart. It's our truest, most centered place, and that ultimately is the source of our bravery. Amen. Fantastic. Very, very good. These are great answers, and this was fun to go through. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. You know, Gabriella, (laughs) I read your book and I literally had four pages of questions that I wanted to ask you. And I knew I wasn't going to get to all of them, but I didn't get to anywhere near the ones that I wanted to. But what we just covered, you've just beautifully articulated and you have an incisiveness around your understanding of this that I think people will listen to this over and over to really understand everything you're talking about. So I want to compliment you, but I also want to thank you on behalf of my audience. Thank you so very much for joining me. This has just been a fascinating conversation and you're a wonderful person. We're grateful you joined us. No, thank you so much for your kind words. And, you know, if any of what you've shared and I've shared can help people, then that's the most meaningful part of it all. So thank you for the opportunity and for building a place where people who care about these issues can come to learn and to grow. No, that's lovely. Thank you so much. (laughs) You take care. Bye-bye. Bye. As we close our show, I want to announce that my publisher just created a special paperback edition of Lead from the Heart for India exclusively, and it's now available wherever books there are sold. I especially want to thank all of you who are telling your friends about our podcast. We're trying very hard to change minds and hearts on how we lead our workplaces and the larger our audience, the faster that change can take place. I want to thank my talented and wonderful team, Mr. Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, Anna Boynton, and my sound engineer and producer, Eric Goss. Our theme music is the 75-year-old jazz classic, Take the A-Train, performed by the BBC Big Band Orchestra. Oh, and one last thing, I now leave you with my two consistent reminders. First, when you leave from the heart, your people will follow. And number two, love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm